Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 through 20. The Lord says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, that your heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flint rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods, and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I feel like Sam already stole... My whole message already. That's good stuff, Sam. Thanks for leading us, brother. I, great idea, having just the ladies sing. Sounded so sweet. Thank you for singing out, even without all of the supporting voices around you. So this is, as Sam said, our last message in our Rooted series. As we try to build up unity and partnership and generosity towards purchasing this building that we get to call our own. And then, so this is the last week of that. Next week, we're going to just jump into a few week series of a summer of Psalms. Again, we did that last summer and we want to make that a tradition every summer. And then maybe like after 10 or 15 years, we'll get through all 150 Psalms. That would be cool. And then we'll come back at the end of the summer to our story of the Bible series and finish that up over the next year to help you better understand the whole story of the Bible and your role, your fit in God's redemptive plan. But today, rooting, finishing up the Rooted series, and I promise we're done preaching about money, we'll just hopefully focus on a call to faithfulness together as we move forward on this project. So before we jump into our message, let's pray. Pray that God would fill us. God, there are many things that could fill our hearts with joy, with hope, with peace, with confidence, with satisfaction in life. I pray now that you would fill us with your word and your word would sustain us. Your word would carry us forward. Your word would inspire us to greater faithfulness. Your word would fit us for your purpose. God, make us all committed worshipers and use us through this word to strengthen us that we would represent your great name in this city and throughout the earth. 
In Jesus' name we ask in confidence that you will provide for these things. Amen. I'm really passionate about marriage. Not just my own, but all of yours if you are married. I'm really excited that the Hansons, Ben and Tess, are now back with us after getting married last weekend. It just fills me with excitement to see them newlyweds. It's a marriage is just a wonderful picture. Even if you're not married, we need marriages around us because it's a picture of Christ's love for his church, for us. But as exciting as all of that is, I often need to warn young couples, I didn't get to spend time with you guys, that the wedding is really just the beginning of the battle, of all of the work that needs to be done. It's not the arrival at bliss, it's the beginning of the commitment towards it. And somehow our culture has taught us to think that the wedding, the honeymoon are the best part and it all falls apart from there. Or others think that, you know, we're going to get married, but as soon as we get a house or when we have children, when we pay off our debts, then we're going to be happy together. But really, what's important is focusing on the relationship and not all the circumstances around it. This is really part of every relationship that we have. We can't enter into any relationship thinking that it's going to be easy from here on out just because we have some common interests or some maybe theological affinity with one another. Relationships take hard work. They require a commitment to a future together where we promise we will work through conflict and pursue reconciliation. And you can't just sit back and think that that initial affection that we have for one another is going to carry us through because trials, as Sam said, will come. Things are going, we're going to hurt each other. Satan is going to use all kinds of circumstances to convince you that the person you're in a relationship with is your enemy and you would be better off somewhere else. That's true of marriage. That's true of just friendship and especially true of a church family. And so with that reminder, I can't help but both be excited about this building project and be a little bit concerned as we take our next steps as a church toward this. We're, we're finally growing up and getting our own place, moving out of mom's basement. And I'm excited because this journey, while it's been kind of daunting, God has provided in incredible ways. It's been so much fun to watch him work. Many people told us, you're never going to get a loan from a bank. It, they're just not going to do it. And we have a loan waiting. They're just set an agreement saying, let's, let's set a closing date and get this loan signed. And we all wondered, are we going to be able to raise enough money? And God has provided abundantly more than we needed to start off with. But I'm also a little concerned. For years, we've been wandering around town trying to find where our home's going to be, praying, God, please provide us some stability. We've given generously and we've asked others to come and support us. And many of you have come early, week after week after week for years to help set up chairs, help set out communion, help run chords everywhere and practice music. It's been a lot of work and sacrifice. And so it's kind of 
exciting to get our own place, but I'm concerned that we're going to think now's the time to put our feet up. We made it. We've arrived. And we'll forget who we are. It would be nice to catch our breath, but we can't forget what God made us for and why he's providing this opportunity. We can't assume that because we've that we've arrived and we can just take it easy now. Or like Israel, we will become we will become lazy and proud and forget our purpose. So to wrap up our rooted campaign, I just want to bring us back to the story of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy and provide a warning a warning of taking God's provision for granted. It's far too easy for a church just to get comfortable in, in a building and it's nice organized programs and then we put all our effort into maintaining a building and holding together our organization and we forget what the main purpose is in Christ. So we must be reminded today to be filled with God's word that we will be fit for God's purpose. That's our main idea. Be filled with God's word to be fit for God's purpose. Our outline, I'm just going to run through a few chapters of Deuteronomy culminating in chapter 8. And then remind us of who we are as Redemption City Church. What our values are and how we hope to accomplish God's calling as we transition to our new place. So let's begin by being filled with God's word. What does he say to us in the book of Deuteronomy? Before we jump into specific texts, let's just remember where we are, where Israel is right before this. The book of Deuteronomy is, is Moses' last call to the people before they cross over that river and head into the promised land. They've been waiting for this for 40 years. 40 years before that, the parents of this current generation were saved miraculously out of slavery in Egypt through powerful signs and wonders. The ten plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, wandering through the wilderness and God providing food and water for them. The shaking, trembling experience at Mount Sinai. How could you forget these things? But they did. Within days, they forgot what God had done for them and they complained. And so, that first generation was led to wander around the wilderness for 40 years until every last one of those whiners and complainers died. And now their kids get to enter the promised land. And Moses is telling them before they enter, don't forget what God has done and what he is giving you this land for. So the first few chapters of Deuteronomy are just reminding them of some of these stories, what God has done. And then in chapter four, he tells them, do not commit adultery. Idolatry, sorry. I mean, spiritual adultery, right? Same thing. He means, he tells them, don't carve any idols. Don't make a statue and say, this is God. This represents God. Or don't look at animals or anything in creation, the sun, moon, and stars, and say, that represents God. Why? Because he already made a representative for himself. His people. 
He made them into a nation who would make the rest of the world look on with wonder, he says in chapter 4. Who is your God that you love one another so much that you take care of one another, you serve one another, and he's so merciful to you. Our God is so harsh and demanding, but yours is patient and kind, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So in chapter 5, then he reminds them of this law that is supposed to be their guide into becoming this kind of people. He gives the Ten Commandments again, explaining there's kind of two parts of this law. All these hundreds, six hundred or so laws that I'm giving you can be boiled down into love God and love others. But first, chapter 6 stresses you must love God Above all things, before any of your neighbors, all of the rituals, all of the sacrifices, all of the worship, the festivals are meant to focus your heart heavenward, to fill your heart with his word so that then you can turn and offer the best kind of love to your neighbor. So Moses says in chapter chapter six, verse five, listen up. Hear, O Israel, open up your ears, obey this command. The Lord Yahweh, our God, is one. He's the only one. You shall love him with all your heart, soul, and strength. This is the crux of the existence of the people of Israel. This is the reason they're going to the promised land. That can be a place for them. To love God freely and display Him joyfully to the nations. Like us getting a building. It gives us stability. It gives us order. And it gives us a future to pass this on to our children and our grandchildren. And then in chapter 7, he moves on from that emphasis of the first part of the law, loving God, and reminds them, Of the second half of their responsibility, loving your neighbor, showing them how love for God will be displayed in light of this duty to love God first above all things. Now they are to be a nation of priests to all the nations surrounding them. Their purpose as a community is to show the world who God is by reflecting his character into the world in love for one another, in leading the nations, inviting the nations to come in and watch what we do together. No matter what threats or allures the world brings, Israel must always stay devoted to God first. Don't waver by being tempted to appease the watching world who thinks they're they're a little weird over there in Israel. They worship only one God. They don't even have a statue of him in their temple. What a bunch of crazy radicals. Israel can't fall into fear, believing that threats in the world like giants in the land over there are going to overtake them. They must turn against everything that threatens To turn them away from seeing God as the greatest and turns them away from their community purpose. And so he assures them in chapter 8. You can imagine they're wondering, all right, this is a radical devotion. So much so that I'm wondering, how am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to feed my family? 
So he assures them, as long as you stay focused on this mission of worshiping me first and loving one another, representing me to the world, I'll take care of you. I'll provide for you. And so he says in chapter 8, he reminds them of their wandering in the wilderness. I gave you food when you were hungry. Bread came out of nowhere. Quails just come flying in and lay at your feet. Water comes pouring out of rocks. I take care of you. For 40 years you walked back and forth through the hot sandy desert. And your shoes never wore out. Your clothes never faded. This is miraculous provision. God provides for his people. And he does this in verse 3. He says, in order to teach them that man does not live on bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He's saying, even the most basic necessities of life, and by extension, Your life itself is less important than staying committed to this very task. God will provide when you seek him first. And now we arrive at our text in chapter 8. Even after all of these reminders, dramatically putting all these things before their eyes, saying, remember what happened? Moses gives a serious warning, says, take care lest you forget he knows it's going to happen this is a repeated warning throughout deuteronomy he says it in chapter 4 same thing in chapter 32 i know you're going to fall away i've already seen it their parents were slaves in egypt god powerfully rescues them dramatic experiences and you think how can someone forget that and yet days later they're already complaining that they wish they were back in egypt oh we look foolish to those egyptians now don't we and this new generation might think well we're gonna have our own place now we're gonna have our own land and it's full of fruitfulness so we don't have to complain because we're not in the wilderness anymore But he said in chapter 6, look, I'm giving you a land filled with cities you did not build and houses you did not fill and cisterns you did not dig and vineyards you didn't plant. It's a fruitful land that I'm giving you and you had nothing to do with it. And he warns them in verse 14 that stepping into this prosperity is going to test your heart. It will cause your heart to be lifted up And you'll forget the Lord. It's like that star teenage ball player who uh, overcomes all kinds of adversity and he gets that division one scholarship and then he's, he's drafted in to play in the major leagues, signs his multi-million dollar contract and he forgets the friends who were with him the entire time and all the sacrifices his mama made for him to get him there. And he blows it all on self-indulgence. It's going to happen. Even if you experience the miraculous, powerful provision of God, it's too easy for your heart to just fall in to the next thing. We're all susceptible to the bombardment of messages from the world for safety, prosperity, happiness, telling us we can find it anywhere else but in God's word. 
We're such affirmation junkies. We like to taste a little bit of success here and a little bit of affirmation there. And then we just need more of it. The word is never enough. We're quick to make all kinds of excuses to wander away from what God has called us to. And when we forget what God has done, what he's promised to those who stick together, then it puffs us up in pride. And so Moses warns a second time in verse 17, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and my, the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. When life comes easy to you, you start to think maybe you had something to do with it. When affirmation from the world or comments from our coworkers, little pats on the back from our spouse, fill us more than the affirmation of God through His Word, you start to believe that prosperity, success, worldly affirmation are things that you accomplished. You start to think that your plans and your strategies are probably a little bit better than God. You know, I'm not too far out of line. I'm kind of parallel to him. We say things like, I I can marry that non-Christian because God's promised me that he's going to save that guy if I marry him. Ah, no. Or, you know, I bought that thing that kind of is this little statue or picture of Jesus and I'm not actually worshiping it. it. I just use it to remind me to worship Jesus. Or, you know, I, I have a job that I can't ever come to church, but it's because I just, I need to provide for my family. I need to, I really love helping people there. I can't be too committed because my friends think some of you are a little weird. So, and I want to reach them for Jesus. And if I bring them around you, then they're not going to want to come to Jesus. So all these excuses sound like they have some level of nobility in them, but at the root, they expose a heart that has forgotten what God has done and what he's called his people to be. We're first called to gather, to fill, be filled with God's word, and by that, then be fit for his purpose. And as you turn the pages forward in this story... You find story after story and example after example of a people who did not remember, who were not filled with the word, who forgot God's purpose for them, but weaved throughout. There's promises, many promises that one day God would send someone who would come and fulfill all of these words, enabling any who join him to become what Israel could not be. So one day, Jesus is out in the wilderness experiencing the very same temptations that Israel did. But without all the whining and complaining, Satan tried to tempt him with promises of worldly comfort and power. Let me fill your heart with this and fill your heart with that. All kinds of people will affirm you, but he couldn't get in there because Jesus' heart was already filled with God's word. These words from From Deuteronomy, he rebukes Satan saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but man shall live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And from Deuteronomy 6, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. 
These are the words that sustained Jesus through his trials, through his temptations, and fit him for God's purpose to save his people. And later, when people recognized, how does he live like this? He has nothing, and yet he just continues to give and serve and bring all these people around him. Someone asks him, can you give me some of that food that you've got? That sustains you so deeply. And in John 6, he reminds them of the manna in the wilderness. And he tells them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Again, a few verses later, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. This is all metaphorical language saying that his work, his promises, his commands must be more essential to your existence than even food. His work, his commands, his promises must be more essential to your existence than food. And we need that multiple times a day. And so what did he do and promise and command though he was the only one who was filled with God's word perfectly satisfied perfectly obedient to the father represented his image throughout the world in everything he did he took himself took the death of that we deserve upon the cross on his own shoulders to pay the price for our whining and complaining and rebellion and refusal to be part of his purpose. And he rose from the dead, defeating death, guaranteeing there is no condemnation for any of you who put your trust in him. This is the work we are to remember. And what did he promise? He promised by his death and resurrection, that very death and resurrection that freed us from our sins, that he will also provide for everything we need. He will be our daily bread. Even if you must deny your family, sacrifice your career, he will provide a family and a purpose for you among his people. Even when the world turns on you, your friends abandon you, or your body falls apart, he promises he will raise you to eternal life with him. These are the promises we must remember. And his commands, basically, be what Israel failed to be. Be the community of redeemed people who refuse to give up on one another, who refuse to stop worshiping God together, who represent him before the nations, even if it looks foolish, and call them out of their idolatry, out of their foolishness, out of their fear, out of their pride, out of their guilt and shame to be saved and filled, satisfied with the bread of life that never leaves you hungry. These are the commands we must remember. Brothers and sisters, these are the things we can never forget. This is the truth that fills us and fits us for his purpose. And as we move into a building... We can't act as though we have arrived and now we can relax. Put your feet up. We've made it. 
Sure, we're not wandering exiles in Rochester anymore, but that just means we've gotten to a place where now we can more fully fulfill what we are called to be. We can't just think that sitting back and having things set up for us every Sunday now automatically make it so people are going to come flowing in. Man, look at all the people getting saved because we bought a building. And you know, one time we used to love each other too. We can't be lulled into comfort or duped into pride thinking that we achieved it in our own wisdom or strength. As I think about this building opportunity, I think of the story of Israel. We didn't build the place. We didn't design it for ourselves. We didn't fill it. The kitchen is full of tools for us to use. There's speakers and and cords already set up. We didn't fill it. And we're trying to be generous to give for it, but we are far more dependent upon a people outside of us to even pay for it. We are just like Israel. The building is a gift to provide us stability and a future to pass on worship of our risen King Jesus to our children and to their children and to all of those around us. Sadly, there are many churches around the country and even in this city that have buildings and don't fill themselves with God's word and have forgotten their purpose. They're more interested in accommodating the prevailing messages of the the world and the culture, fulfilling the perceived needs of those around them. And churches like this can continue to exist even without a spirit-filled, Christ-centered, word-focused, heaven, heavenly vision type of people because they've got a building that they can rent out for income. And they've got a generous donor or an endowment that pays the bills indefinitely. And they'll boast of their community partnerships and their service projects, their love for their neighbors, their good family programming. But they've forgotten who God is and what he's called them to be and what he has done. And so Jake and I often pray, God, if this church ever stops proclaiming Jesus and representing him in this city, kill us. Wipe us out. Don't let us become a false witness to this world. Don't let us tell the city, you can be a Christian and mostly live on bread alone. The building is not our bread. Jesus is. Let's never forget that. Let's never forget who we are. Let me briefly remind you to finish up what Redemption City Church is all about. What we believe God has called us to be in this city. If you've come to one of our Exploring Redemption dinners, you've heard this before. Remember our name, Redemption City Church. That means a gathering of people in the city made to proclaim the redemptive work of Christ on behalf of sinners right in our neighborhoods. We want to be in this city seeing God transform people's lives by the word of Christ alone. Nothing else. And this is why our first core value is being Christ-centered. All of this transformation only comes by lifting high the name of Jesus, the work of Christ in his death and resurrection. 
We don't just talk about God. We talk about Jesus, the one who reveals God to us. It's in his death, his resurrection, that he takes the punishment we deserve. He kills that old, stone-hearted, sinful flesh and raises us to new eternal life with him. And our second core value emphasizes that we are to be primarily about worshiping him. Gathering together is the priority in order to communicate to this city, Deuteronomy 6, 5. God alone is our king. His word is the first one we listen to. We take orders from him. He's the only one who can provide safety and comfort and hope for a future and rest for a weir- the weary. He can provide food and water out of nowhere. He can make your shoes And your clothes last forever. They might get out of style in 40 years, but you can still survive. We carry this worship from the gathering here into our homes and into our neighborhoods and into our communities and into our workplaces to show them what spirit-filled, Christ-centered life looks like. And our third value is diversity. Reminding us that every person of every age, of every economic level, of every ethnicity has a place in Christ's kingdom and in this family. As much as possible, we need diverse perspectives to tell us what we're missing, what we're not seeing. To show the world what God does with Christ at the center. We don't gather because we're all the same. We gather because we have the same Savior. This diversity and unity displays to the world the love and power of our God, our triune God, who in himself is diversity and unity. And he sends his spirit in us, in every single one of you, to make your perspective valuable. Not just some elite trained insider who has the right view that you're all supposed to follow. We all need each other. And so our fourth core value is mission. This love for God at work in one another must go out. The love of Christ compels us to share his love with a lost and dying world. And so we are going to talk a lot about supporting and sending missionaries and training up and equipping and sending out church plants and And filling you with the word so you can go to work filled with the word and reject any pressures to be filled by anything else and to confront idolatry and confront fear and invite others into salvation. Finally, our last core value is community. Because we see throughout scripture on almost every page that all of this worship, all of this mission work must happen in community, in close partnership in close proximity with one another we need people around us with other perspectives to confront us when we're confused or scared or wandering we need the strengths of others to come alongside the strengths that we have so we can be more effective in our witness we're better together And we want to do this work for a community. We want to be established in a location where we can permeate the neighborhood and bring this love to them, not just on Sundays, but every day 
showing them what Christ does for his people. Brothers and sisters, I think we think that this building provides us an opportunity to do all of those things better than we already do. Let's not get comfortable and forget who we are, what God has done for us. Not having a building has kind of been a blessing because it's forced us to build an identity around these truths, whether we're in your homes or at work, at a lunch table, out shopping together. Some of you have come to my son's baseball games. That's where we build this identity. My fear is that getting a building then will diffuse all of that and lessen all of that. Let's not, when we move into the building, move all of that wonderful God-glorifying work of Christ outside of our homes and outside of our neighborhoods and our workplaces. But let the building inspire us to greater worship, greater hospitality, greater mission, greater community in all of these places. Some of us have big dreams for this building. Some of you have already begun planning a community festival to go serve our neighbors like within a month of getting there. In the fall, we're launching a college and seminary. Rocky's doing all kinds of work behind the scenes to make that happen. We're hoping to start some ethnic outreach ministries and maybe a primary school. We're going to rent out to other organizations. Maybe, God willing, send more church plants. But if any of these things forgets what Christ has done and what we are called to be as a church in him, may they never get off the ground. May they die a quick death. Don't let this building let us become complacent, redemption. Our work is just getting started. I can't wait for a long future with you that's been enabled by this building, but hasn't overcome what we were called to be. This building is just a temporary home. Don't forget what God has done and lose sight of what he has promised. Let's use this building to be filled with God's word and to be more fit for his purpose. Let's pray. God, I, I just fear the day one year, five years, 10, 30 years down the road when Redemption City Church is just a social club, is a nice community outreach project but is not exalting Christ and remembering all the amazing work you've done, not just throughout history, but in our own lives. And and the future you have promised for us in a heavenly kingdom surrounding your throne, worshiping with these brothers and sisters. May those things be so real to us that we could never forget them. That can only happen, God with Christ before our eyes, with the Spirit renewing our minds and with your word filling our hearts. Hold us fast, Father, that Christ would be honored in our service and our love as Redemption City Church. By his powerful name and for his ultimate glory, 
we ask. Lead us in these things. Amen.